It's a great privilege for me and Catherine to be with you. Um, this is a church that we pray for, and even this morning, um, the church in um, Jambalali ECCD is praying for you. But much more so, we come to friends, and so it is just a reunion of our friendship with a number of you, and so it's a joy to be with you, and particularly to bring God's word to, to you. Let's turn our Bibles to the book of Matthew. We'll be reading from Matthew chapter 6, from verse 25 through to verse 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. I'll begin to read again. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not your life more than food? And the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And, when, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet, I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we approach your holy word, we ask that you, by your spirit, would once again illumine our eyes. You might cause this book to live. We pray, O oh God, that you might grant us hearts that are receptive. You might grant us hearts that are malleable, that will be shaped and molded by your word. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. We live in an anxious age. What is it that ignites your anxiety or your worry? What keeps you up um, late at night? Is it the fear of a job loss or the uncertain job market? Is it the eroded savings um, as you think about your retirement? Or maybe it's because you're single and there is, you can't see marriage in the, in the horizon. Is it a concern about your children? Maybe their spiritual welfare. Or maybe just how they'll turn out in life. 
Is it your threatening poor health? What is it that ignites your worry? This passage calls us not to worry. Do not worry. Does this sound like just hollow um, rhetoric removed from reality? Is your response to all of this, but I have so much, uh, I'm too anxious to stop worrying? Dear Carson gives the response of three different people to this passage. I'll first highlight uh, their, their characters. The first is called uh, Laid Back Larry. He is always late. He is always unreliable. He never gets round to doing anything that he commits himself to. He does not take his life seriously or even his faith. The next is Frida, um, Freightful Frida. She takes everything very seriously. She often thinks and overthinks even about the decisions that she's to make. She worries that once she has made the decision, she would probably have made the wrong decision. She worries about things that may never happen. The last is hurting Henry. Henry is a mature Christian. He just found out that his wife is dying of an inoperable brain tumor. He worries that she may soon reach that degenerative vegetative state. All three hear this same sermon, and these are the responses. Larry feels very vindicated. Yes, everyone should just chill and be a bit more like me. Freightful Frida starts to worry about the fact that she is worrying. Henry is annoyed. You're telling me to worry when I have such a big burden on my back? What did you say to Larry, to Frida, and to Harry? Worry is not the enemy. Worry, in one sense, is good. Its absence is irresponsibility. There is another sense, that's the way in which this passage uses the word worry or anxiety. It signifies unbelief or disobedience. And so this passage focuses on that aspect of worry. The point is, what are we anxious about? Or why are we anxious? The Apostle Paul gives us other passages where he uses the same word anxiety, but in a very different sense. The first is um, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 28. You need not turn to it. Paul is sending back Epaphroditus, the church at Philippi, and this is what he says. I am eager to send him, therefore that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. Paul was anxious for the churches, and so in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 28 he says, And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul uses this word again to describe the undivided attention to God of those that are single. In 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 32, he says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things that the Lord, of the Lord and how to please the Lord. 
And so anxiety is not the enemy. It is what we are anxious about. What, what anxiety does it is that it reveals our hearts. It shows us what we treasure. Is it the things of the Lord or is it the things of the world? Just to set the scene, in Matthew chapter 6, we are um, in the middle of a discourse. Jesus is preaching by the hillside to a huge crowd of people. And this is often referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is speaking to very ordinary people, to farmers, to fishermen, to those who um, sell in the marketplace. And so these people had a subsistence culture. They only produced enough for their daily needs. And so he speaks about those whose concerns would be things such as food, drink, and clothing. Stepping back into the whole book of Matthew, we see um, Matthew introducing to us Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed king, in the line of David. He came to save his people and to be king over his people, to establish um, his rule and his reign over his people. So Jesus came to do two things. One was to save and the other was to teach. In this section on the Sermon on the Mount, what we see is Jesus beginning to teach the people how to live in kingdom, in this world, in kingdom-minded ways, to live in the kingdom um, in this fallen way, world in such a way that they represent the king. And so the hallmark of the Christian is not the corrosive anxiety of the world. It is not to live um, debilitated by our future concerns. It is to live in this world freed from those anxieties. We're using this word quite a lot, so it's just good that we have it defined. The dictionary definition of the word anxiety is uneasiness or apprehension or dreadful, um, unusual, negative thoughts, are sometimes related to what will happen in the future. Anxiety is superimposing the future on the present. It is the preoccupation of what might happen. In anxiety, we exhibit a lack of faith. So looking down on uh, our passage, if you look at verse 25, he begins there with the word, therefore. Therefore, I tell you. That shows us that whatever he's about to say is connected to what has gone before. And so a good understanding of this passage is for us to have an understanding of what has gone on before. He's just been talking about treasures in verse 16. Do not lay for yourselves treasures on earth. And in verse 24, he says, No one can serve two masters, for either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. He ends on a very punchy, uh, radical note. He says, you cannot save God and money. And then he begins, therefore. So we see that the connection between this passage and what has gone before is that anxiety is symptomatic. It is an indicator of what's going on in the heart. Just like when you go to a doctor and you're sharing with the doctor the symptoms, they are able to read into that what exactly is happening to you. It shows us where we lay our treasures. 
This passage is often misunderstood to think that it is just a passage about worry. No, it's a passage about where we lay our treasures. It's a passage about who we serve. And so some of the wrong ways that this passage is misunderstood, firstly, is that this passage does not teach irresponsibility. All Christians are those irresponsible people. Those people who just say, don't worry to everything. That's not what this passage is teaching. This passage does not mean you should not get a job. Because Paul, in other passages, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, says, um, avoid those, keep away from those who walk in idleness. And he goes on to say that imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. This passage is also not a formula for getting rich or passing your exams. Seek the kingdom of God and I get my riches. That is not what this passage is about. This passage is primarily about who we serve and that anxiety or worry is that indicator that shows us. Therefore, he says, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Is life, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? The Lord Jesus Christ says, do not be anxious. It is not a cliche. Um, there's a famous uh, popular song, don't worry, be happy. Jesus here is not giving us a pep talk about um, self-esteem or positive thinking. Jesus here is warning his disciples about that destructive, disquieting, distrustful um, concern that we normally have for the things of this world. Anxiety is a bad symbol of unbelief or really shows us what we treasure. So we'll look at this passage today under two headings. The first is God cares for his people and the second is serve the Lord. This passage is one in which the Lord Jesus Christ is really teaching his disciples. And in teaching his disciples, he seeks to expose what anxiety is, and he uses rhetoric questions. Rhetoric questions is something that we learn from a very young age. Parents do that quite a lot. They ask you questions for which you are not supposed to answer. The answer is obvious. And so Jesus here is using rhetoric questions in order to teach um, or to reveal what anxiety is. But also we see the God-centeredness of Christ's teaching. So in this passage, we'll see four reasons why we should not be anxious. The first is God provides in verse 25 and 26. Then God is sovereign in verse 27. God is able in verse 28 and 29, and lastly, God knows. So God cares for his people. The first, as we have seen there, we should not be anxious about our drink, about what we will wear, uh, about our food. And he says, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? He's saying there, God provides. And God provides for us in two ways. Firstly, he gives us life. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he's reminding them that he is a giver of life. 
it is not just food and clothing that he gives, but he gives life. And he gives spiritual life. How do we come to know this life? It's by turning from sin and trusting in him for our salvation. The Lord Jesus Christ says, Do you not know? Whoever believes in the Son has life. And this is life that you may know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. Life, true life, is knowing the Lord Jesus Christ, is turning from our sins and walking in his ways. The Bible says to all men that we are dead in our sins and our trespasses until we receive life in the Lord Jesus Christ. How can we know of this life? Well, firstly, by acknowledging our sin, that we are dead in our sin and in need of a Savior. Secondly, by acknowledging that Christ died on the cross and that through his death on the cross, he has taken our sin. He bore the punishment for our sin. And acknowledging, thirdly, that by repentance, turning away from our sin and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, we receive of this life. Christ accomplished life through his death and his resurrection on the cross. In saying this, Christ was not minimizing the importance of food, the importance of clothing, because God gives all of this. He was not denying or despising the needs of the body, but he is saying, Jesus is saying, is not life more than these things? He's saying to us, there is sin, there is judgment, there is heaven, there is a forgiveness of sin. And so lift up your eyes from a two-dimensional view to a three-dimensional and look at heaven. Look at the things that God provides. God cares by giving us life. Will he not give us that which is lesser? Will he not give us food and clothing? Secondly, he says, God provides by giving us our daily needs. If you look at verse 26, he says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds, uh, feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? He's saying to us, look at the birds. I know bird watching is not one of my recreation. Uh, but he's saying, observe and learn from the birds. Martin Luther says, he's making the birds our schoolmaster. He's making the birds our teachers and says to us, you know, birds are of little value. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 29 says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? So how much is one sparrow? They are of such little value. Birds do not work. They don't sow or reap, so says the verse. Birds do not gather into barns. They don't stockpile. They don't uh, trust in their reserves. No. They are unlike the rich fool. Remember the rich fool in Luke chapter 12 who said, Wow, I have so much harvest. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build even bigger barns. No. God feeds the little birds. And so Jesus is saying, are you not of more value than they? Jesus is here arguing from a lesser to a greater. 
Let's go back through that. What is our value? Go back to Genesis. God in Genesis created man. And he created man in his own image. And gave him that special place. And said, have dominion over all that I have created. That is man's position. Man is God's vice regent. And so we are unlike the birds. Secondly, for those of you who are in Christ, God has purchased you with the blood of his son. Christ was precious to God, and yet he gave him up that you might have life. Not only that, he says to us in the same verse, your heavenly father. See that in verse 26. Your heavenly father, as well as in verse at 32. Again, he uses that phrase, your heavenly father. Sinclair Ferguson says of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is teaching us about the relationship between us and our heavenly father. Surely that should turn around our lives. Surely that should turn our attitude to the things of this world. How do you think about God? Do you simply think about him as Yahweh, the eternal one, the most high, the everlasting one? Well, this passage is very instructive for us, that our default position as children of God should be our Father in heaven. Today, we have come before our Father. That is a great privilege that is ours as Christians. That's a relationship that we are called to as Christians. We're told in Ephesians chapter 2 that once we were children of wrath, but Christ came and died for our sins. We now have been adopted into sonship. Romans chapter 8 and verse 32 puts it this way. And he did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all. Uh, that we might be his children. And so, God so graciously has given us the very best of heaven. God is willing to bankrupt heaven that we might be his children. What great value is each one of us, uh, those of us who are his children? Would God, having given us Christ on the cross, needlessly leave us without a meal? or without clothing? The gospel, friends, is that great cure for anxiety. It is not our discovering our self-esteem and our positive thinking. No, it's going back to discover what God, our Heavenly Father, has done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible never goes beyond the cross. The cross is what reveals to us the heart of God and the way that God values us. And so, friends, never graduate beyond the cross. God provides life for us. God supplies our daily needs. Second reason we see is that God is sovereign. We see there in verse 27, he says, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? We were not designed to exercise control. God is in control. We cannot extend the boundaries that he has decreed. Anxiety does not add a single hour to our lives. In fact, 
it reduces on life. Remember the passage that we read in 1 Kings 19 about Elijah? How it completely debilitated him. And all he did was just sleep there until God comes to strengthen him. Well, it does that for us in several senses. Uh, for some of us, it is those sleepless nights when we just toss and turn. Or for some of us, it is a raised blood pressure uh, because of our worries. For some of us, it is a mental condition that we find ourselves into, uh, which is because of our worry and anxiety. For some, it is the panic attacks that uh, you are constantly having and uh, not knowing what will happen next. For some, it's linked to our stomach ulcers. Uh, and so it debilitates, it reduces the quality of our lives. It affects our lifestyle. Uh, for some, it just makes it harder or we just cannot make decisions at all. And for some, we just coil into ourselves and um, get into our excessive habits. It could be uh, social media. It could be um, smoking. It could be drinking. Whatever that habit is that we try and use to numb ourselves from that which causes us worry. Well, the Bible says here in verse 27, is, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single R? Or maybe you're just reducing the quality of your life uh, by your worry. God is sovereign, and we can entrust ourselves to him. God has decreed the span of our life. God is not only able, um, but he is one who actually carries out that which he has said. He has authority, but he also has the power to carry out what he has said. And so in verse 28, we see the fact that God is able. In verse 28, it says, Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet, I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Lilies do not spin, Lilies do not labor. Flowers do not need to labor to grow. He's not referring to an activity of life that they need to do in order to grow. I think he's referring here to the drivenness that we often have. Um, the thought that we often think about ourselves that we can add meaning to our lives but by what we do or what we have. The thought that if I just had more stuff, I will be more comfortable. Remember that nagging thought of, you know, if I just did a bit more, I would be in a better place. There was an um, American billionaire uh, and wealthy philanthropist called John Rockefeller. And a journalist walked up to him and said, uh, Mr. Rockefeller, how much is enough? And uh, Mr. Rockefeller responded, just a little bit more. It is the acquisition mode, that thought that if I just get a bit more, I will be content. Others, it is not the sense of acquisition, it is the achiever, achievement mode. If I just get one more credential, if I just uh, get this on my CV, if I just get that paper, 
then I will be okay. And so we keep being anxious or worrying about just getting a bit more, whether it is acquisition or it is that sense of achievement. Look at the passage. He says, oh, look at Solomon in all his glory. Our passage says the monarch of Solomon was nothing pales in insignificance as compared to the lilies of the valley. There is no grandeur or splendor or kingdom here on earth that can equal the way that God cares for the lilies of the valley. Which of you, by being anxious, um, he says there, can add to your life? But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? He's saying God is able. God cares for his people. But he's also saying at the end of that verse, at the end of verse 28, sorry, at the end of verse uh, 30, O you of little faith. That is a clue. He's saying our problem is not an economic problem, meaning if I just had more money in my pocket. Our problem is not um, an economic problem. If there were just enough jobs, you know, there'll be stability in the job market. It's not a social problem. If I just change and have the right kind of crowd around me and hang around the right kind of people, all will be okay. It is a faith problem. He says, oh, you of little faith, failing to grasp that God cares, that God is sovereign, that God is able, and that finally God knows. Look at verse 31. In verse 31, he says, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. He's saying there, firstly, I think as a rebuke. When you do that, you live like the Gentiles. When you do that, you are just like the world. But then he says, your father knows. He knows you personally. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your circumstances. He knows your hopes. He knows your fears. He knows your longings. He knows your desires. He knows those things that are deep in your soul. The Father, your heavenly Father, knows you. We often wish or think, if I knew what was coming around the corner, if I knew tomorrow, I would better prepare, be prepared for it. I would be more in control. I would avoid anything that would go bad. A wise person has said, though we can't see around the corner, God knows. And that should be very reassuring for the believer, that that is far much better than my knowing what is around the corner. And so the passage reminds us that all these are ways in which our anxiety is exposed and that our solution is to go back to God. Anxiety is unreasonable for a child of God. But really, with all the reasons that have been piled before us, 
we continue to be disquieted, to be distracted, and to be distrustful. Because worry is essentially a heart problem. And as our elders stood up earlier to remind us, worry is actually a sin problem. It is a disobedience against God. And so, after Christ provided here reasonable response, four good responses that are all God-centered, he now gives us what is a remedy for uh, anxiety, and that is serve the king. That's our next heading, serve the king. We see this in verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I remember singing this as a child in a song, as a very common song. Well, what he's not saying in these words is that this is the gospel. The gospel is not, I should do this for God, and God will be nice to me. This is not what this verse is saying. This verse says, having been saved by God, having been brought into God's kingdom, the imperative is that we should be those that seek God's kingdom. So firstly here, the primary focus is that we should be uh, godly. We should be those that are seeking God. Our sight is often myopic on the things that we see, but here he's saying, raise our eyes of faith to see the kingdom of God and live for that kingdom. That should be your chief delight, that faith rests on the reality of that which is true and that which is to come. Do not seek your own self-kingdom. Do not seek your self-sufficiency. The need for most of us to control our lives, to control our circumstances, unwittingly to control God in the whole process. But he's saying here, um, when we think we can control, sadly, this just leads us to anxiety, to a sense of worry. Anxiety is symptomatic of idolatry. Often, we think of idolatry as something that I worship or um, someone that I have put in that place of God. But here, we're being told of how idolatry is that distrust of God. It is when we think God is insufficient. And so he's saying here, beware of idolatry. How do we see this? He says there, therefore. Therefore. Um, we see this in verse, um, in, 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 verse, in verse 25, but also in verse, 20, in, in verse 31. Therefore. That is a response to the passage that's just been above, which is verse 24. Who will you serve? Is it God or is it money? And so he's warning us about the danger of idolatry. And he's saying that it's symptomatic or it is seen in our worry. A good example here is Israel. Remember the nation Israel? They never stopped uh, believing in God altogether. The existence of God, they strongly believed that and they never denied it. But they denied the sufficiency of God. They denied the sovereignty of God. It was always God plus, God plus Baal, God plus, let's make a golden calf. It was God plus. And he's saying, this is idolatry. Beware of this. If we do not trust in God 
completely. We are in idolatry. We, if we are in anxiety, that is idolatry. We have picked up other gods. And so he says, what should be our main priority? Seek first the kingdom of God. Before that, he says, but. And that but is in contrast to the non-Christians. What do they do? They worry. They are anxious about everything in life. In fact, one good witness for those of you who are children of God is when you are in very difficult situations and non-Christians look on at you and they expect you to be worried. When those instances that happen that are not coincidences, you've broken a leg, you're involved in an accident, you've been diagnosed with cancer, you've just lost a job, and the immediate thing that they think is that this person will be full of worry and they are just thrown aback, taken aback, as they see this sense of calm settledness. Because what? We have a heavenly father. That's what he's referring to, that sense of, and so he says, but seek first the kingdom of God. This is our antidote for those of you who are believers. It is to seek the kingdom of, of God. As we have said, uh, the kingdom of God, before you seek it, you must be in it. How can we be a part of God's kingdom? The way to admission, the way to be part of God's kingdom is to turn from our sins and ask Christ to rule and reign in your life. Young people who are here and you think, I am in control of my life. I enjoy my life and I think I should rule and reign my life. Well, that is the kingdom of the world. That's the kingdom of Satan. Here, Christ calls us into his kingdom, and we enter in by repentance of our ways, by turning from sin and self, and trusting only in the Lord Jesus Christ. Where do we then see the kingdom of God most visibly in this world? Where do we see this kingdom? I would want to suggest we see the kingdom of God very clearly in the church. It is here that we see the rule and reign of Christ amongst God's people. I come here and I marvel at brothers and sisters who have seen months or years ago and seen more and more now their delight and their desire and their growth in Christ. So, when the Bible says, seek first the kingdom of God, I think he's saying, first of all, be plugged into the church. Be a member of the local church. Be a part of everything that the local church is doing. Is it midweek Bible study? I want to be there. Is the church encouraging us to one-on-one -on -one discipleship? I want to be involved in the lives of others. I want to be concerned about the welfare of the saints. I want to be concerned about the holiness of others within the church. And so when the Bible says, seek first the kingdom of God, I think here is where we see the rule and reign of Christ in contrast to out there in the world. But also, I think this is saying to us, Christ should be supreme in every aspect of our life. He should be the first agenda, the first priority in all that we do. That is, um, everything about our lives should be Christ-centered. He should be central. His kingdom, his reign, his rule should be uh, preeminent in our lives. 
Do we think that is too much? Do we think there's an area that we should leave out? Or let's look at the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. He came to be served. He gave up his life as a ransom for many. Christ made us his highest priority. He was even willing to die in our place. Is it demanding too much from you to ask that you seek first his kingdom? We owe him our all. We owe him all that we have as believers. And so when the Bible says, seek first his kingdom, it's saying Christ, his rule and his reign should be that which I prize above all else. Is it in my workplace? They should see that Christ is, is preeminent. Is it in the home? Let Christ, his rule and his reign uh, be that which is the foremost above everything else. Is it in your school? Um, Christ should there be preeminent. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. As I said earlier, this is not prosperity teaching. When I give God so much, then he gives me so much in return. No, no. This is seeking him, and he gives me his righteousness. His righteousness is what I need to delight and to live according to his ways. This friends, should be the delight and the desire of all believers, that the character of God, his faithfulness, God's love should be that which engulfs us, that which we delight in, that, is, that which we are swamped in, and all these things will be added to you. So the first we've seen there is focus on the kingdom. Secondly, he says, focus on today. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its trouble. Jesus is saying, do not bring tomorrow's troubles into today. We cannot control the future, and so our concerns should be today. What does it mean for you to glorify God today? Do not procrastinate. What is he calling you to do? Do faithfully. Are you a stay-home mom? What does faithfulness look like? Are you a young person who has just gone on summer break? What does faithfulness to God look like today? Are you a dad? What does God call you to do today? To lead your family, devotion in the family. To care for your home today. That is what he's calling us to. And so, for those of you who are non-Christians and are probably visiting for us, uh, us today, you're very welcome to be with us today. And, and probably worry is something, that, is something that concerns you. The Bible is here saying, turn to Christ. Turn from your ways and entrust your life wholly to him who is able to take full control of it. This does not mean all your difficulties will go away. This does not mean all your troubles and the situations will go away. But it says you'll entrust him to another who can care for you. Getting back to our th three friends, remember laid-back Larry, Fretful Frida, and Hurting Henry? Laid-back Larry, this passage is not endorsing carelessness, a lifestyle that is unconcerned about anything. It's actually calling us to be concerned about seeking the kingdom of God. Anything less than that is spiritual immaturity. We ought to be those that are concerned about God's business and are on our knees 
praying for God's church. For Faithful Frida, he is here saying, Well, God cares for you. You are more precious than the birds of the air, that God feeds, um, God feeds and cares for you, that he clothes you much, much more than he does the grass of the field. And so entrust yourself to our Heavenly Father who is faithful. What about to Henry? Well, he's saying here that worry is not the enemy. It's okay for one to be concerned about his ailing spouse or family members, but that should not drive us to anxiety. There's a very thin line there. He's saying you should be about seeking the kingdom of God. The challenges that we have of life should not move our focus of God. Remember Martha and Mary? He says, Mary did the commendable thing. And therefore, we should never daily seek to remove our eyes off that which is God's concern. The cares of the day are sufficient. And when he talks about the cares of the day are sufficient, he's also saying, do not bring yesterday's baggage into today. Maybe because of something that happened in my life previously, I should not bring that guilt into today. The Bible calls us to repent, to turn from our sins, and then to seek to seek God today, and not to be debilitated by yesterday's um, circumstances. And so the Bible here says, seek the kingdom of God first. He's mandating us to a life of peace, a life of contentment, a life where our lives are our worries are put to God, a life where our security is in God and in God alone, and that we are not uh, crumbling like the world with the concerns of today. You as a believer, the Bible says, should not be like the world. Your life should be a witness in the fact that your concerns are always being taken to God. And when you sin, when you find yourself anxious, quickly repent and turn and trust in the Lord. For those who are not Christians, he says, come to him. He will take your burdens. He will lift your burdens and that he will grant you new life. Your circumstances might be exactly the same, but you'll have a peace with God. He says, come as you are. You need not clean yourself. The only fitness that he requires is for you to feel your need of him. And so this passage is not a passage that is merely about worries. It's about who is Lord in your life. Is it God? Is it our heavenly Father? And worry is that symptom that shows us exactly who we serve or what is it that we treasure. Is it God that you're worrying? Is it God that you're serving today? What is it that your worries are, t are telling you about who exactly that you're serving today? Let us pray together. <clears throat> Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you remind us that the salvation that Christ has wrought is one that frees us from our fears, frees us from anxiety, frees us to have a contentment in Christ, frees us to know a liberty 
in living for you and for you alone. Lord, we pray that this passage would not only challenge us about ourselves, but also as we interact with one another, we pray that we would be equipped to be able to encourage, to strengthen those who are going through difficult times, to point them to Christ and to what Christ has done. We pray that we might live lives that are countercultural, even in, 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 our, in our workplace and in our neighborhood, that Christ would be central. We pray that our lives would emulate those who know the faithfulness of God, who know the character of God, and who live this experientially in our day-to-day lives. And so we thank you for your word. We pray that we would be quick to turn from sin and that we would be those that live differently in this world. May our lives, O oh Lord, live the reality of the kingdom that is to come. For this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.